Welcome to the Legendarium. Today, Ryan, Craig, Todd, and Ken get in way over their heads trying to discuss the politics and psychology behind Robert A. Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Try not to laugh too hard at us through this one. Welcome, welcome. Ryan, do you want to sing our theme song this week? We don't have a theme song. <laughs> what, what is playing over our voices right now? Okay, we have a theme song. It's not singable. <laughs> Every time we try, it just goes... I really shouldn't ask. Welcome to the Legendary <laughs> Podcast, everyone. Today, uh, we continue our Heroes of Sci-Fi series. Uh, we're discussing Robert A. Heinlein's Starship Troopers. But before we get to that, of course, we need to uh, introduce ourselves once again. Uh, I am Craig Hanks, of course. Uh, now, to my left... Why is it that Craig never has an insult for himself? You know, because Craig is uh, practically perfect in every way. Oh, okay, Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> to my left, he's jamming our radar, and there's only one man I know who would dare use Raspberry. It's Todd Wenty. <laughs> I would use Raspberry, but not into this microphone. He's such a majestic creature. Unicorns go in search of him. It's Ken Johnson. Oh, I'm frying bacon on the bounce. (laughs) And of course, they're very disappointed when instead they find Ryan Bruckman. Bringing disappointment everywhere I go. (laughs) Since 2010, I don't know. All right, so let's, uh, what do you guys say to a bit of a recap? Um, um, I think that's our that's our modus operandi, isn't it? All right, that's SOP. <laughs> that's a big l- word. <laughs> modus operandi. SOP. All right, so Starship. I, feel like I would fail in Wheel of Fortune. If shut you did that. up! My gosh, Starship Troopers recap. Three, two, one. Here we go. <laughs> Starship Troopers follows the story of Juan Rico, who goes by Johnny, thus giving us Johnny Rico, maybe the greatest name in all of science fiction. In an undefined future, Johnny gives his overbearing father the middle finger and joins the Terran Federation, the Earth's military-centric world government. In order to become a citizen with voting rights, one must serve a minimum two-year term of service in whatever military role the government assigns. Johnny wants to do his part and is assigned to the the Army's Mobile Infantry Division, the grunts of the Federation's fighting force. Johnny works his way through basic training at Camp Arthur Curry, then joins Rajak's Roughnecks, the roughest, toughest bunch in the mobile infantry. He acquits himself well, as in he doesn't die, uh, and then applies for officer training. During this training, he drops with a new squad onto a bug planet where he acquits himself well, again, by not dying. The book ends with Johnny promoted to lieutenant over his old squad, which is renamed Rico's Roughnecks. Sound like a sparse story? Well, it kind of is. But... What uh, what a recap like this doesn't explain is how much theory Robert Heinlein packs into it. Military, leadership, psychology, politics. He goes through just about everything that was on the collective mind in the middle of the 20th century. Even during should-be-boring discussions of equipment, tactics, and officer-to-soldier disbursement, Heinlein makes points about, well, whatever he wants, right? Uh, and he, he had a lot to say. Uh, so, did you guys enjoy... The uh, the lecture that is Starship Troopers, <laughs> yeah, very much all so. of them. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, Ryan, did you know that this entire book started out as a response to the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy? No, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, so they were. Uh, it was a group that was calling for complete nuclear disarmament, and Heinlein vehemently disagreed with their uh, position. And, and that so, was in that was in 1950 when this process began. Right. And so he was uh, so he started writing down why nuclear disarmament was so stupid and it eventually coalesced into Starship Troopers. Ryan Thanks has, for joining us. Ryan stunned, has an interesting look on silence. his face. I'm impressed. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, the reason I go to you first is because uh well, partly at least because you were the one, contrary to, to what normally happens, usually I'm getting really excited, I'm into something, I'm trying to engage you guys in conversation on, on Facebook, and Ryan's like, you guys, holy crap, Starship Troopers is the greatest book ever! <laughs> so, I'm very interested to hear some things that you have to say about it. I So, when, when I first uh, started that conversation, I had just finished, I believe, the first uh, flashback to the discussion with uh, 
who we find out later was Colonel, I believe. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois. Uh, Lieutenant yeah. Colonel Dubois. And I, I went through and I read it and I just thought, I'm like, there's so many things that are the politically, socially that I, that I think are expressed so well here and so clearly that everyone should read it, whether you agree with it or not. You need to read it so that at least you understand this argument. Yeah. It was beautiful, and I thought, that's what this needs. That was chapter eight, wasn't it? Yeah, chapter eight. Mm-hmm. I just simply yep. went through, everyone needs to read this so you understand this this idea, and then you can decide whether you agree or disagree or how you would alter or whatever. And that's that, to me, was something that I was like, it's so nice to see in literature, inside of a story, such great ideas being shared and done in such a way that, you know, it, through a character you can you can relate to, you know, in the end, after this whole long discussion about a number of things, pretty much every time Rico goes through one of these discussions, he always ends back to his soldier way where he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm just a soldier, but, you know, it's nice to think about type thing. And I thought that was uh, very valuable and, and something that we, it gives everyone a chance to really think through something they may not normally put a lot of thought into. Yeah. Well, so one of my favorite uh, passages actually occurred way back in chapter two. So at the very beginning of the book, when we first meet, uh, Mr. Dubois, because he's Rico's uh, science teacher, or uh, sorry, history, not science history yeah. and military philosophy, history and military philosophy teacher back in school or moral in high philosophy. school. Yeah, moral whatever. Philosophy. So anyway, he's having a discussion. One of the girls in the class says, "Well, my mom says violence never solves anything," <laughs> and he goes off, and it's perfect. So I'll read you a, a fairly lengthy passage. He says, uh, "Anyone who clings to the historically untrue and thoroughly immoral doctrine." that violence never solves anything, I would advise to conjure up the ghosts of Napoleon Bonaparte and the Duke of Wellington and let them debate it. The ghost of Hitler could referee, and the jury might well be the dodo, the great ock, and the passenger pigeon. Violence, naked force, has settled more issues in history than has any other factor, and the contrary opinion is wishful thinking at its worst. Breeds that forget this basic truth have always paid for it with their lives and freedom. Oh, I mean... You don't you don't put it much more eloquently than that, as far as I'm concerned. You learn early in the book that Dubois is he's he's the guy to listen to. You're he's, like, oh, he's this, is, this is good. Right? So, yeah, he's Robert Heinlein in this book. He is, he is, and um, it, it becomes very obvious that that at least as I was reading through it, and this is my third time through the material that that Robert Heinlein uses these characters to put forth different positions and different perspectives that he had at different times in his life. He did serve as a midshipman and as a, uh, as a, as a graduate from the Naval Academy. Um, so he had an opportunity during the 1930s to serve on an aircraft carrier when they were brand new, um, watching the evolution of these new war machines as they took place. So I'm sure that when we see Johnny Rico, we're seeing uh, a glimpse of how he saw the process and reconciled himself to the process. But when we see Lieutenant Colonel Dubois, we are seeing Robert Heinlein after having been a soldier, watching World War II, watching all of the problems that are coming with it, and looking forward to where those problems can lead, I think we're getting a very good view of him, of his views as they grew and changed. One of the things I absolutely love about this this discussion he has here, a lot of people, their instant reaction when they hear someone kind of kick back on the idea that violence doesn't, you know, violence never solves anything. Violence never solves anything. A lot of people, they immediately kick back uh, or when someone battles that, they kick back and say, well, you're just, you know, you're, I don't want to say pro-war, you're, you're, you know, you're glorifying violence. The beauty of this argument is he's not saying that violence solves everything. He's saying, don't say that it doesn't solve anything. And it's a very small distinction that a lot of people lose in, in their discussions about this sort of thing. And I love in every single time in this book that I, you read one of these, uh, these theories or these ideas He's very careful in the way he writes it that he's not, I don't feel he ever really oversteps the range. Like if you were to say, no violence, he's like, no, violence solved every, you know, has solved everything in the past. I would say, no, you've, you've overstepped here. But he says, no, violence has solved more of the major issues in the past, you know, X number of years than pretty much anything else. But he never at any time turns to it and says, so it should be our first response to everything. Right. In, in fact, it's really interesting to watch how, as as what we find out later is one of the most um, influential, and, and we find out later in the book he truly is one of the most influential warriors of his time that Johnny Rico gets to have all of these kinds of exposures with. He does not glorify 
violence for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's very careful to use the to use the the reasoning process that he does, the discussion process that he goes through with these with these young people to make a point, to make it clearly, to make it concisely, and to make them think about it as they go. But it's also really interesting. He can do this because he's created a world that has very different realities than ours. We really, I, I would contend that his world is, is his world is what he anticipates ours becoming in, or should have become, uh, in the last five to 10 years. Okay. uh, One of the, one of the things that I, when I first came across this material back when I was 14, um, just a little older than my son that's sitting here with us right now. Um, I was, I was hooked from the very beginning because of all the punching, uh, that first chapter where they're going through and they're attacking the skinny's planet and, mm-hmm. and he's talking about, you don't jump too high because that makes you a target. So instead you jump low. Then I ran through a building, you know, I can run through three or four walls and it's not going to stop me anything. And then I <laughs> found my, you know, I mean this, this magnificent, just uh, a long running monologue about all the, the havoc that he's causing. And then we immediately go back to high school. And that kind of felt familiar to me because I'm in high school. I was in debate. I was doing all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was... I love I, that you used the present tense there. Because I'm in high school. I, right, Todd, right. When I was 14. When I was 14, that was kind of what I was thinking. Um, but his perception was that in the late 20th century, street gangs have completely destroyed uh, people's ability to walk confidently in open places at night. Oh, that's right. In 19... 19- when I was going to high school, that was a big conversation. Uh, there were a lot of those kinds of problems, especially in more urbanized areas. Um, we had, uh, but Heinlein's contention was that that led to the destruction of society. And in our case, we found other ways to get around it. Um, t- so, Todd, when you were in high school, were you part of a street gang? And how many people did you murder? I was not part of a street gang, but I was part of the debate club. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. But I return to the second part of my question. How many people did you murder? None. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Uh, Ken, what about you? I went to West High, so I uh, still am not allowed to answer that question. Yeah, the, the statute of limitation on murder is uh, still pretty high. <laughs> Unlimited, as far as I know. Um, so I, I do want to go back, if I could, uh, because I'm looking at notes. Uh, from from my little ebook that I had on my phone. By the way, this is second now only to the Lord of the Rings in the amount of notations that I took. It was <laughs> this whole book is just coated in red. Yeah. Uh, in mine, the, it's yellow. Yeah, right. I mean, I have I have four colors because it's Google Books, <laughs> and it's really it's really good. Okay, I hate you. I know. Um, anyway. Uh, oh, yeah, so I want to talk about cliches, because we already mentioned um, violence never solves anything, and there's a there's a great book, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the podcast before, but one of my favorite political books is The Tyranny of Cliches by Jonah Goldberg. Now, granted, he's a conservative author, and so not everybody's going to love what he has to say, but one of the things that he does really well is he points out just how a cliché can kind of worm its way into your consciousness and break down your your ability to think logically about a subject. And violence never solves anything is a great example of that. Where, you know, you're you're taught this repeatedly from the time you're a little kid, and so pretty soon it's just gospel truth. Why? Well, because I've always heard that. You know, violence never solves anything. That's what people told me when they were trying to get me not to punch that kid on the playground, you know? Um, but it's clearly not true. And then there's another one that... Um, that comes up often, and that's understanding. Um, uh, if if only we all understood each other better, <laughs> we would just get along, right? And the and so a point that gets brought up both in that uh, tyranny of cliches book and here in Starship Troopers is that uh, no, that's complete baloney. If you if you understand something better, you're actually more likely to hate it and fight it. Um, if you look at the at the hottest spots around the world. You know, it's not like Mexico's gearing up for war against Poland anytime soon, right? It's uh, it's always Israel and Palestine, or it's, um, you know, African tribes and nations warring against each other. It's India and Pakistan, arguably the source of, you know, Shiites, the, the next... Shiites versus Sunnis. Yeah, there you go. It's So you get the idea, the more you understand something, um, yeah, you could grow to love that thing, or you just grow to hate it. Anyway, so Heinlein says... Um, 
uh, let's see if I can pull up the entire thing. Oh, yeah, he's talking about the uh, the guy who the deserter who ended up killing a little girl. Hendrix. Yeah, he says. Um, he says uh, to understand all is to forgive all is a lot of tripe. Some things, the more you understand, the more you loathe them. My sympathy is reserved for Barbara and Enthwaite, whom I had never seen, and for her parents, who would never again see their little girl. So it, it's it's remarkable to me how he takes these concepts and rips down these cliches in you know in the middle of this very seamless story. I love it. You know the one that the one that I had that one of the ones that I liked. Um in the way that he approaches this was the idea of the juvenile delinquent. Oh yeah, that's good. Um, also in chapter eight where, where he says, uh, there's no such thing as a juvenile delinquent. Delinquent means that you have relinquished your duty. You haven't followed through with it. And a juvenile has no duty. So the one who's delinquent in the case of a juvenile delinquent is the parents. And by extension, the rest of society, I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. This is not going to go over well with some of my, good-hearted friends. <laughs> um, but it's but it's interesting that he... And, and the thing that I've loved about this book now for 30 years is that it's not that he throws these things out and expects you to accept them. He throws them out, he builds his case, and he fully expects you to disagree. But he doesn't care. Right. And I do disagree on a few points. But, I believe that. But uh, many of them... Surprise. I loved. Why surprise? Just surprise, surprise. <laughs> when it comes to politics, I, if I found a book that Craig agreed with everything in, I would probably freak out. So. <laughs> Craig could write the book and he wouldn't agree with everything. Probably. <laughs> probably probably true. Probably not. Actually, yeah, one thing that he did say was in that same story about the, the deserter who killed the little girl. Um, he gets into a discussion about morals. Um he says, man has no moral instinct. Yes. And then he goes on to describe how we're, we have morals built into us or, or bred into us by our... Cultivated into yeah, us. by our culture and our family and whatnot. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with that. Actually, what, uh, what I thought of... This reminds me of, um, of Hero of Ages... Uh, Brandon Sanderson's Hero of Ages, so the last book in the Mistborn cycle. If you haven't listened to the podcast, you should. Uh, anyway, in which uh, Brandon Sanderson talks about how preservation, so they're the dueling gods, preservation and ruin, and preservation essentially gives up some piece of himself, his physical self, and disperses it throughout mankind, so that because mankind now has an imbalance in favor of preservation... Mm-hmm. They're able to be creative and uh, to build and, uh, you know, to be that that kind of uh, creative force behind the world. So I, I kind of take that view where there's, even if it's just ever so slight, I think that that men are born with, uh, with a moral instinct. We are essentially good, or at least better. We're, we're more good than bad, even if we all have each in us. Wow. As a as a general statement. And I wouldn't say that I based on the quote you pulled, I can see that he the where the disagreement sits there. But I wouldn't say that he's entirely against the idea that you said. It's the idea that it's cultivated into us a little more. Um there's another quote from that section. He says, A scientifically verifiable theory of morals must be rooted in the individual's instinct to survive and nowhere else, and must correctly describe the hierarchy of survival, note the motivations at each level and resolve all conflicts. So in order to say basically it in the end it has to be your morals have to be situated inside that most base desire to survive mm-hmm. and exist and continue on and in that sense we all have that and so we are all born with that desire to survive and so therefore we just have to teach those pieces into what into that existing goodness there or that existing drive right so I'm glad you called it an existing drive. Um, it's really interesting too when you go back and you look at when this book was was being authored. Um, there's a lot of social psychology, social science that is starting to develop during that period of time. Um, Jung is Jung is kind of rising to predominance. Um, we've got Bandura um, and. Um, Maslow, who are all presenting, along with uh, Viktor Frankl, a survival, survivor from the concentration camps, the Nazi concentration camps, that are putting forward some ideas about how man resolves some of the larger 
questions of life, of survival, of how do we move forward, and how do we structure a society that allows us to do so. And and again, Robert Heinlein jumps onto the onto the bandwagon. He studies, he understands what's going on with those, and he projects forward in time what these things may look like if certain ones were accepted and held onto, and others were abandoned. Um, there are there are pieces of his the the one thing that I've always that I've wished I could see the rest of was the decay of the civilization in the 20th century, the way that Heinlein was supposed, the, the way that Heinlein's world exploded. Um, because I would like to see which, which um, theoretical underpinnings he dismissed as useless and find out where we fit them in and why we've been able to survive longer than he expected us to. Hmm. Um, Sorry, did I mention that I did my undergraduate work in psychology. Sorry about that. That's just kind of one of those places where it shows up again. You, well, you might have mentioned it, but I think I slept through that part of it. Yeah, thanks, Craig. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know, I know, I know. Right. You hate me. Go That's ahead. true. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm kind of in that same chapter um, with, the, uh, with the presumed rapist murderer. Um, it's chapter 8. Anyone who wants it, to refer to what we're looking at, we're in Chapter 8. Chapter Thank eight. you. Yeah. By chapter the way, 8 was a huge chapter for a lot of this kind of stuff. Anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a while knows how just how amazing it is that we're actually going into the book and quoting it. Usually mm-hmm. we're just kind of up in the clouds, like, you know, talking about whatever it is. This one really kind of sucked us in, didn't it? Oh, it did. Um, it it tells, you, tells you some of the quality of it. And also, this is I discovered how to make the Kindle app work so that my highlights and everything are pulled out into nice. a separate piece. So yep. it just makes it easier for me. Nice. So anyway, um, the, so he starts talking about, uh, this is Mr. Dubois talking to his class again, and they start talking about rights. And so I went, I, I, yeah, we're all, we all separately, we all separately took notes on the exact same thing. Um, it was shocking to me that he, so first he, uh, this is Heinlein through Dubois, says something that I just said, no, absolutely not, screw you. I wish I'd been there to watch and that moment. And then I'm screaming at my little phone here, and then a, as he winds up his discussion, I go, oh, jeez, you just, I don't know if you changed my mind, but my word, you just made me think about some stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, somebody in the class raises their hand and, they, and, and says, uh, sir, how about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You know, aren't these rights? And he says, ah, yes, the unalienable rights. And he goes on and says, what right to life has a man who is drowning in the Pacific? You know, and he goes through all this stuff and I'm, I'm just ready to throttle this guy. Um, and I'm like, there's a difference between rights and abilities, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he wraps up the discussion, and he says, um, going back to Todd's street gangs, um, which I understand he was the leader of, uh, he says, The junior hoodlums who roamed their streets were symptoms of a greater sickness. Their citizens, all of them counted as such, glorified their mythology of rights and lost track of their duties. No nation so constituted can endure. And and at that point, I had to scrape my brains off the wall and go, gosh, dang it, now I have to actually think about something. This is terrible. Mm-hmm. This is the worst book I've ever read. Anyway. As he smiled and went on to chapter nine. Oh, I really did. <laughs> so, yeah, this this concept of what is, what is a right and how far do you take that idea? And it, this is such a salient point now because you, you have this discussion between in our country between left and right uh and he would say no you've all lost track yes he's he would say okay on the right you're all screaming about the constitution basically making it a deity and saying you know all of our political and national truth is is within this document and cannot be found outside of it and then on the left, you have people saying, no, screw that. And if anything is good about the Constitution or the, or the uh, Declaration of Independence, it's this idea that uh, I get to pursue my own happiness and, and screw all the rest of you. And he's saying, no, you, none of you get it. Uh, I, it just blew my mind. Love it. Well, um, I have had a few different discussions, especially in the last couple of years, uh, with some of the political changes that have been going on in our in our nation and especially in the, in our state here in Utah. Um, and I've had discussions with people, and it finally forced me to make some decisions kind of uh, of what I believe and what I thought uh, regarding the idea of unalienable rights or God-given rights type thing. And 
do they exist? And, you know, if they do exist, which ones are they? And things like that. And to read through this was such a, it was a reinforcement and a, and a, a reality check to go through and say, okay, you're right on some things here. Cause I, I agreed with him for the most part that the idea of these unalienable rights, you know, they, in nature, they don't exist. And I've been, a, I've been a proponent in the past that, you know, for as much as we cry as, you know, as, as humans, like that's my, it's my God given right. It's my unalienable right to do this. Well, that nature did not put that right inside of you. Nature did not do that sort of thing. It's a man-made construct. And so therefore it must fit, you know, the rules that we apply to it must fit uh, the man-made construct we've met, we've built. And so that to read through this, it was like, oh, that was that was a beautiful way of of reinforcing the idea that we take for granted so much the idea that our rights are these unalienable rights are like there's some sort of like having blue eyes or brown hair or whatever it's just born into you and that's not necessarily the case it was built through a lot of things and there's one um, it, this is stepping a little a little off from that but he write he wrote a thing and he was talking about the values. Um, this is in the same chapter, uh, for me, it's page 126 in the Kindle version. Uh, he says this says, Liberty is never unalienable. It must be redeemed regularly with the blood of patriots or it is, or it always vanishes of all the so-called natural human rights that have ever been invented. Liberty is least likely to be cheap and is never free of cost. Mm -hmm. And so to everybody who has ever gone through and said like, well, it's my God-given right. And it, yeah, but tell me the price tag that was paid for it and what value you place on that price tag. And tell me the price tag you paid for you, it. Yeah. Even, even if, you know, I would say even if you didn't pay for it, you need to be able, you need to understand the price that was paid by somebody else. Because even if you receive a gift, you can value that thing. Agreed. If you didn't, quote unquote, earn it, you know, perhaps you simply earned it through the love of a family member or friend, that gift that you received. You can value that if you understand what went into getting it to you. Is that right? right? Mm -hmm. I agree. And he actually writes back uh, in, in uh, chapter six, something that kind of hits on that point. It says, I fancy the poet that who wrote that song meant to imply that the best things in life must be purchased other than with money, mm -hmm. which is true, just as the literal meaning of his word is false. The best things in life are beyond money. <laughs> I totally highlight I had that yeah, one. I, I their price... Their price is agony and sweat and devotion, and the price demanded for the most precious of all things in life is life itself, ultimate cost for perfect value. Like, I don't know if the whole idea of dropping the mic existed when Robert Heinlein <laughs> did this, but if he just took his pen and went, <laughs> dropped it on the desk after writing that, I would totally understand. Yeah, Actually, he probably he pushed he the probably, typewriter off the desk. He probably went, <sighs> <laughs> so I, I want us to kind of put a, a finger on that page and this concept because eventually in this discussion I want to talk about this idea of, of making these points through fiction. Uh, but let's come back to that. I, I also want to hit uh, the writing style that Heinlein uses. <laughs> I want to compare just for a few minutes, if we could, uh, the movie, uh, that, oh. that masterpiece of American cinema. Uh, wow, something loud is happening here. It's because they heard you call it the masterpiece of American cinema, and it's about to fall in on your head. <laughs> that was Robert Heinlein rolling over in his grave. <laughs> so I, so I, I want to talk about those things, and then, uh, and then let's have a kind of a general discussion about fiction and, and how this work fits into it, and, and what it was, what it was accomplishing. Um, so let's, let's, like I said, talk a little bit about the uh, the writing style that he uses. Now, one thing that I love about Starship Troopers is one of the same things that I love about The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, not Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> it, so he's describing um, uh, uh, some leave that they were taking. They, they had leave in Vancouver. They took a shuttle down to Seattle, and they're sitting in a bar, and a bunch of people are making fun of them because they're military men. Um, and then he says... Uh, Two, two merchant sailors were uh, passing remarks that were intended for us to overhear. I won't try to repeat them. And then he moves on. And, you know, he talks about the rest of the situation. But he doesn't wallow. He never wallows uh, in crassness. And that's, for me, that's the mark of a good author. It's not that I don't think that you could or should ever describe crassness in, in more detail. I'm, I'm probably okay with that if you pull it off right. But 
most of the good authors I've ever read leave it behind. Whether it's violence or language or sex or whatever it is, there's a way that, of course, you know, this is why they make the big bucks, and I don't. I don't know how it's done. A way that they can that they can describe it without going into the detail. I'll say uh, to build on that that a lot of the authors who work in comedy, it's called working in blue. It's mm-hmm. you know working yeah. working blue. A lot of the writers who write the crass stuff or with uh, a lot of profanity, that sort of thing, they do it because it's easy. It's easier to write base and write lowest common denominator stuff like that. It is far harder to stay above it like Robert Heinlein does. And going going into it, having seen the movie and not read the book, I expected a lot of that because I'd only had experience in the movie. And to, to learn very quickly that, that he, he wrote without even everybody knows that in the military, you know, four letter words are, are regulation. You know, <laughs> sure. It's standard operating procedure. And there is not a single one. No, even among the soldiers. And it's great. Not only that, but he doesn't, he, he not only does he not use the, uh, the crass language, but I'm, I'm looking in mine. It's, uh, page one thirty one. Um, it's the same Liberty, uh, that they're taking. And he's, and he says, and I took for granted, uh, I, I took for granted a lot of things, but I also took for granted girls. Girls <laughs> yeah. are simply wonderful. Just to stand on a corner and watch them going past is delightful. Um, and he says, and they don't just walk at least not the way that we do. And we talk, well, I don't know how to describe it, but it's much more complex and utterly delightful. <laughs> they don't just move their feet. Everything moves and in different directions and all of it graceful. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, if this were being written 50 years later, it would, it would become be a very different kind of a conversation, yeah. a very different kind of writing style. I, and I've, and you know, I agree. I find it, I find it refreshing. I find it inoffensive. Um, but I still find it descriptive and absolutely relatable. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, that's that's one thing that I enjoyed about his discussion of girls. That this isn't necessarily an extremely uh, progressive work because it, oh, you know, no. as far as as far as the sexes go. <laughs> Although he, you know, he does make a point that female pilots are better than than male pilots uh, and yeah. that sort of thing. But but you but can anyway, tell it was very fifties. Yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely a product of its time, but um but there yeah, there's something nice about he's not necessarily setting them up on a pedestal the you know in the way that he talks about a lot of these uh, political and moral philosophies. He just he is taking the view of his main character which is that girls are nice to look at, you know, and and I does it in a fun I way. haven't seen one in 6 months and she was pretty. <laughs> and so was she. <laughs> anyway, um it's very refreshing, and it's very it's complimentary to the reader to be able to turn to them and say, "I trust you to figure out the other things that are going on here without me having to write it." Yeah, mm-hmm. because you know those things are still there. You know that crassness and everything is still probably it's the, in it. It's that trust that we talked about with Brandon Sanderson, right? He yeah. trusts his readers. I don't have to spell out that the soldiers are crass in some instances because. You know that, and so I'm going to focus on other pieces here. In fact, the way he wrote it was quite entertaining. I chuckled to myself a couple of times when he said, and that is explicative, <laughs> unmentionable. <laughs> and he writes that word, unmentionable, you know, unwritable. It's, it, it made me chuckle on a number of occasions when I read those things as we were going through the book. Um, Ryan, you, uh, do you remember the line you brought up as uh, one of your uh, examples of his writing style that you enjoyed? Because I do. Do you remember which one I was? Yeah, so it was at the uh, the end of chapter eight um, when he says. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes! I know what you're talking do about. You, now. Do you, I've got it pulled up. Well, you go ahead, because so they uh, they catch this guy who deserted and murdered a little girl, um, and he says uh, uh, he says I wondered how Colonel Dubois would have classed Dillinger. Was he a juvenile criminal who merited pity, even though you had to get rid of him, or was he an adult delinquent who deserved nothing but contempt? I didn't know. I would never know. The one thing I was sure of is that he would never again kill any little girls. That suited me. I went to sleep. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Anyway, so what what made that jump out to you, Ryan? So the beauty of... So the first thing we, when I brought that up was it is very difficult to find good first-person narrative. Oh, ain't that the truth? And the fact that this entire story is told that way and done so well is impressive of its own right. You, barring the content and everything else that's discussed... The, that writing ability is impressive. 
So what I loved about this, though, is we get a chance as a reader to relate and really get an idea as to who our character is because he simply says, he breaks it down to how most of us would respond to something like that, where he says, you know what? There's a lot of philosophy and things like that to this, but quite honestly, he's not going to kill another little girl, and I'm okay with that. And that's where. And how many of us, that's the response when we deal with something difficult is, we find that basic denominator of that lowest common denominator of it's not going to happen again, or at least this you know is the case, and we can move on. To have a character do that in first person inside this was just so refreshing and so just very, very unlike anything I've read recently. Yeah, yeah. Ken, one of my favorite things about the book is that Johnny Rico is so practical. Throughout the book, it's and, and this is this is one of my favorite things, and one of the things I, I keep trying to impress on my kids is at the end of the day, don't worry about things you can't control, and that is throughout the entire book. Things like uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a passage that I liked. Nice, <laughs> I like ladies, where this is ladies going. and gentlemen. Actually, this is this is a good moment. Yeah, there you go. This is this is it's in chapter sixteen when he's he's away from the rest of his his platoon and he's trying to figure out what to do and everything and he's he's not sure you know should I stay put should I go and he he just he finally comes down to it and says doing something constructive at once is better than figuring out the best thing to do hours later yeah, yeah. you know and that's you know don't don't dwell too much on it just get moving and you know the same thing with. With the deserter, like I can't, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if it was right, but the results are what they are, and that's good enough for me. And throughout the book, it's the same way. It's I can't worry about that. Not going to worry about that, you know. And and he's so practical, and I that is my favorite kind of character. The other thing that I really liked about the writing style is that it it was it it was not a it was not a stream of consciousness, but it had moments where it felt very stream of consciousness. Um, it was not a all re- it was not all retrospective, but there were moments where he inserted retrospective elements in the context of a larger piece that was going on. It's, it starts very, uh, in Madeira, it starts very in the middle of the action. And I, and I, and I think for me, that's, that's always what captures me is I want to be, I want to be captured immediately by a book. I don't want to have to fight the first 10 pages just to find out if I'm going to enjoy it. I want to be caught right off the bat, right off the bat. Um, but then all of his important stuff that he wants to go through isn't happening now in the, in the context of right after that first battle, it's all the, a lot of the really important stuff happens way before and quite a while after that pitched battle that he's in is a pivotal moment uh, that we see him at the very beginning. But most of the rest of the story doesn't really have very much to do with that battle. It's just a moment that kind of introduces us to what's going on, to his mindset, to what's and then the really meaty stuff all the way in the past and in the future. And most of it is non-battle. It's in classrooms. It's in discussions. Um, it was really, I, I really enjoyed that because, and it's, and going back to, again, the first time that I encountered it, I was in high school. I didn't want to go to any more lectures, but I was reading that and I thought, you know what, if I had a class like, uh, history and moral philosophy, I probably would go to that one. It mm. was, it was just really interesting to me that you, you know, did. They were just taught by very different people. Well, and very different methodologies too. Yeah. yeah. There's something you kind of brought up. Just it sparked something in my mind. I don't feel that there's ever really a wasted conversation mm. in this book. Mm. Every conversation that we spend any amount of time in has value to it. There's even a conversation that doesn't even doesn't involve. <laughs> uh, we got theme music somewhere in the background. <laughs> hey, new theme. There's music. the theme music. Woo! <laughs> there's there's even a conversation that doesn't involve Rico at all. That is an incredibly eye opening piece, and it's when he overhears the discussion, the discussion between. Zim and uh, and the, the, captain. the captain of the of uh, Camp Curry. There, we get to listen in, and we get this whole per- different perspective on you know the importance of leadership and everything. And it's it's not even a conversation that he has; it's just one he overhears. And like I said, every other conversation with anybody uh, in this book has some value at some point in time. Um, even the one with his father, we get to see kind of the change of heart that his father goes through. 
Uh, every time he talks to a leading officer, there's you know, the leading officer will teach him a short lesson, whatever it may be. You know, the discussion about why are you taking you, why are you doing your math homework right now? That oh, that was I a loved, great conversation. I loved that one because it's the same. It was the same inner discussion that everybody has. Like I got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this. I've got. 24 and a half hours worth of work and 24 hours in the day to do it. And the captain just gets into him and says, okay, prioritize. What do you need that's most important? And he, he, he just, he lays it out for him. Don't do this. Do this later. Do this now. This is going to be immediate. That's going to be down the road. And that doesn't even matter if you don't handle the next piece right. You've got A, B, and C. Right. And if you don't handle... If you don't B handle correctly. A and B, then C doesn't matter. Yeah. So worry about A and B. It's brilliant. Oh well, it's it's only brilliant if you if you uh, stop the child from crying. Well, Ken. it's brilliant to me. No, I I like the child. <laughs> the child disagrees with Ken. <laughs> By the way, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna monopolize the conversation for a change. Okay. Oh, Maybe. I mean for for a moment. That's what I meant. Not for do a it. But uh, I love. I'll give you. I'll give you thirty seconds. Spoiler alert. Uh, he reconciles <laughs> with his father because his, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil a book if you haven't read it. But uh, later on, his father, who was opposed to him joining the military, he runs into him in this starbase called Sanctuary, and his father had joined the military also, and everything among his father was was pertinent to me because it was something that I went through. You know, and I never joined the military. And, and uh, when I was in high school, I almost joined the military. And then later, I wish I'd joined the military. And uh, short story long, I never did. But his rationale and his reasoning behind it all was something that just resonated with me because it was, it was something that I went through going, oh, that's and it's something I wish I had done, but I never did. And it's probably good because I probably wouldn't have met my wife if I'd joined the military. And so... You know. <laughs> And that was really the best thing that happened. So things went very differently for you, Ken. Yeah, um, but that's good because you weren't an MI anyway. So, so no, let's... but if I could have worn one of those awesome suits, that would have been. Cool. Oh, can we talk about? We've got to talk about the suits. <sighs> yeah, we'll talk about the. No, suits. wait, wait, wait! You didn't want to talk about the suits. You wanted to talk about the adaptation. You wanted to talk about the. Let's talk the, about let's the talk suits about... in reference to the adaptation. So, you mean the fact that there were no suits that in the there adaptation? Were no suits, and that irritated me after the reading whole... the book. I wanted to see the movie so that I could see the suits. There were no suits. I was mad. So, okay. So I got to tell you, um, I saw Starship Troopers back in the 90s when I was a kid, back when I shouldn't have seen Starship Troopers. <laughs> when you had no idea what the book was about. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't even know that it was a book. I just knew that there's this movie called Starship Troopers. And they had and Michael my, Ironsides play Dubois. My, well, my, he played Jack. Oh, yeah, he played, played Ratjack. That's but, right. But the, the there difference was no is Dubois. there was no Dubois. It was, it was Ratjack. Right. Yeah. So I was introduced yeah. to Starship Troopers by a neighbor of mine who was a terrible influence on me. So thus I saw my first viscera and my first boobies oh, uh, yeah. that okay. I can remember. Uh-huh. I mean, there might have been others, but those are the ones I can remember. It was, it was in Starship Troopers. Anyway. Is that why Ryan's left the room? Well, yeah, I think it had something more to do with a crying child. I <laughs> could be wrong. Dina Meyer was really pretty. Though. She's cute. Oh, She's cute. Anyway. Far better than what's. So not part of the book. So anyway, shut up. (laughs) You guys will not let me finish a thought to save my own life. Please finish your thought. um, My thought. Just get to it. Ken, you are sitting far too close to me to be such a jerk. So anyway, uh, I, I saw this movie. I had this idea in my head. I didn't especially love it. I didn't hate it. I was young enough that I didn't hate it, uh, even if I didn't understand everything they were doing with it. But I, yeah, I had this image in my mind of Starship Troopers. And I knew the adaptation wasn't going to be terribly faithful when I started this book. Uh, but, you know, I thought, oh, it's got to have something to do with it. But that was that was the strangest thing when we started the book. Todd, you mentioned that great action sequence at the beginning when he's jumping over buildings and crashing through walls because of this awesome exoskeletal suit that he's wearing. And I, I thought, well, what the heck? What were the, what were the movie makers thinking? Here you have maybe the greatest piece of, of you know, arguable sci-fi in this book. Why? Why, oh, why wouldn't you put that in? I can tell you exactly what they were thinking. Okay. They were thinking that Robert Heinlein was full of crap and that his book was socialist propaganda that 
glorified fascist violence, socialist fascist, pro- yes, propaganda that glorified violence, and they wanted no part of it. Paul Verhoeven, who directed it, even said he could not be bothered to read the book. He got to about chapter two and said to the writer, "Just tell me what it's about." He couldn't even be bothered to read the book because so wait, wait, that wait. Was, it didn't fit his. His fit his political screen. Yeah, his political screen. Exactly. They thought this was fascist socialist propaganda. Yeah, boy, that's and and I know. it shows I know. in the way they made the movie. Yeah. Okay. So tell me more. Well, the suits, uh, the, the military uniforms were all blatantly ripped off from Nazi uniforms. Yep. In the in in the World War Two. Right. Okay. I can see that. The the government was. Not nearly as democratic. Robert Heinlein's government, it was still you have to, you know, you had to join the military and serve a military tour to get citizenship and be able to vote. But it was still far more democratic or far, far more Republican in the, in the small R, not the big R, um, than Paul Verhoeven made it in the movie. It was very fascist the way that the government was, was laid out that you are compelled into military service and you will serve and you will dominate this area. They were dominating, not, not that they were attacked, but that they're going out to conquest, you know, very. The, yeah. They, when they, when, when the movie was, when the movie was, Oh, sorry. Yeah. I got to get my closer in again. Um, when the movie was, was being written, we're, we're at a very different uh, political point in our history as well. Um, the nineties is a period where it's after the first Gulf war, uh, but before the second, uh, we're starting to um, we're starting to be confronted, uh, especially here in America. That's where where we started to have a, a large portion or a very vocal portion of our populace uh, starting to talk about some of the imperialistic notions that they that we see in American uh, American culture and American corporations going around. And so the movie becomes a response to certain types of social pressures and certain types of similarities that are being seen. And they just happen to use the title Starship Troopers and the action sequences that were set within the book as the backdrop to send their political message, which is don't trust any large government that doesn't allow everybody a vote because it's going to go wrong and it's going to turn into a fascist Nazi kind of regime. That was another change. The military in the movie is the controlling government, whereas in the book, military was just the, the sacrifice you the mil- pay. The military is the military. And yeah. and federal service, whether it was military or police or some kind of made-up job that allowed you to acquire your citizenship was what Robert Heinlein was looking for. And in fact, I love the I love the statement in the book that he makes that that the difference between a citizen and a civilian is that a citizen has already made the determination that they will put their life ahead – they they will they will they will put the survival of the state ahead of the survival of their own life because they recognize that there is value in that, and that's what qualifies them to be a citizen. Very Spartan, very um, a, a much different kind of a view of citizenship. It's not a right. It's not a gift. It's something that you earn. Um, but but Paul Verhoeven and his uh, cronies that made the film didn't like that and so they just changed it yeah it's and it's pretty much the opposite of the book and i think the other thing that's really interesting that that happened uh, from the standpoint of some of the really cool stuff they did a great job i think the the cgi for the time did a decent job with the starships and with being able to to describe the pitched battle sequences that we hear about um briefly um and they did a good job with the visuals in that context but trying to figure out how to make the mobile infantry suits and how to make that piece of it work was so far beyond their concept of what they wanted to do and would not allow them to have as many big-name actors or beginning big-name actors or long long past their prime big-name actors that they could throw into the film. I mean, this was a cast of, cast of thousands uh, in, a, in a movie that was arguably one of the least – memorable movies of the 1990s except for the fact that it had what's her name um denise richards denise richards Ah. there you go yeah whatever um you you see what my my utter contempt for the film right um (laughs) it had michael ironside i actually met somebody yesterday who loves this film so they're very excited to to, uh i actually like um, the to go after you on that i'm sorry that you liked the film so much i like the film i but 
what it is is not the book. And so that after reading the book, I, I wanted to punch Paul Verhoeven in the nose. So, uh, Ryan, you are always the voice to say, judge it for its own merits, not against the source material. After having said that, you've seen, bo- you've seen the movie and you've read the book. What do you think? So the big piece, the big idea behind this that I, I tend to sit with is to compare something against what it is and what it purports to be. The problem and one of the reasons why I do have issues with the film, as the film as a whole, I didn't feel like it was... I didn't feel like it was amazing. I didn't feel like it was terrible either. I didn't wish that I had those two hours of my life back. You know, that's... I, it's a very... You did see Dina Meyer naked, so... It's it's a very active film. I mean, there's a lot of action sequences and everything. <laughs> Todd, take it easy, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my, my biggest problem is that if you were to have taken this premise and simply say, we've created a film and we're going to call it Troopers or something, whatever, and said, we're used the premise of Starship Troopers and created a film, you would get more backing from me other than because... In this, you claim to be the story Starship Troopers. Yeah. Now, that's where I have the issue. So so this is going back to my thing from a few casts ago where I talked about even if you're not going to be true to the source material, you must at least respect the source material. That's yes. what I'm hearing from you. Am I, am I on the right track? You're on the right track there in the sense that because you decided it would be like if someone were to make a just some random space opera film and call it Star Wars... Mm-hmm. because it's about a war in the stars, um, we would all be up in arms and have them lynched, and <laughs> we would have so many issues. Wow, is that, that a threat? We get to see him as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> we would have so many issues with it because we we hold the source material so so valuable, and, right. it, and it claims it, it decided that it was going to try and ride its ride its value on the name of something else that's been established. Right. This novel deserves better than what that movie gave it in terms of having his, its name associated with it. If the movie hadn't, if they never claimed that it was anything to do with Robert Heinlein's book, Starship Troopers, and just said, we came up with this movie and it just happened to borrow heavily, whatever, yeah. that would be something different than to say, we're doing Robert Heinlein's book and we've made some creative a- adaptations. So, and, yeah, and I, I don't even mind creative adaptations, but but the the lack of respect is a thing. So, like you guys mentioned, um, uh, Ken, was it you that said they thought that this was a socialist or a fascist book? I he said socialist. Pers- I added fascist. Yeah, fascist. I, say, I think it was a Todd and Ken collaboration. So there, there's a... <laughs> there's a uh, Todd and Ken collaboration, would we call that a what would that be, token? A token <laughs> collaboration. <laughs> so token anyway, there's a, uh, there's a passage uh, in which he says, um, he says, let the, intelligent, let the intelligent elite run things and you'll have utopia. It fell flat on its foolish face. He's talking about what happened in the 20th century, uh, yeah. you know, on one of his looks back, look backs. Uh, he says, it fell flat on its foolish face, of course, because the pursuit of science, despite its social benefits, is itself not a social virtue. Its practitioners can be men so self-centered as to be lacking in social responsibility. If the filmmakers had read that passage, then I think they would have understand. They would have understood that uh, Heinlein was preaching pretty, uh, pretty vociferously against... Uh, fascist regi- regimes, because that's what they were all about. If you yeah. look at, yeah. at uh, you know, if you want to take the Nazis or the communists, it's all about the expert. It's about science, leading leading humanity out of the Dark Ages. It's all about uh, man's ingenuity and, and the expert shepherding the masses through civilization, through their, their lives, right? So he was really against that. You know, and the interesting thing is that uh, the movie Starship Troopers is the one that we always remember as the adaptation. But we've chatted a little bit. There were two other adaptations, one which was really bad and one that was actually really good. And that was the animated version, uh, Roughnecks, Roughnecks Starship Chronicles. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Uh, one of, you know what, and I ran across this, uh, it was late 90s if I remember right. I ran across it 
when I was surfing through channels looking for stuff that I could play for my kids that that I thought would be enjoyable television for the both of us to watch, came across Rico, uh, uh, Roughneck Starship Chronicles, and I looked at my wife and I said, "This is what that movie should have been. This is this is cool," and it was it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so we better wrap up with some final thoughts, you guys. Um, I know, right? Uh, we could... Pr- There's more to talk. There is more to talk about. Um, let's let's wrap it up for now. If okay. we feel like we have more to talk about, we'll do it. But I, I do want to get final thoughts from everybody. Um, if you have one more thing that you'd like to say about this book. I remember earlier in the cast, I said, let's let's put our finger on something and come back to it. Anybody remember what that was? Good thing we're all organized. I'm sure. Huh? I'm sure that our listeners know exactly what it was, and they're wishing we would go back to it. Yeah, probably. Well, you guys look it up. Let me. Let me just make my one statement. When when I've my final thought. Okay. Whenever I talk about science fiction, and I and I talk about the difference between science fiction and space opera, the idea for science fiction is that the science drives the fiction. And while there may be some contention about that, because Robert Heinlein doesn't spend as much time developing the science around some of the pieces that he talks about, he suggests that it's and it's, and for him it's not just the hard science of the hardware, but it's the moral science and the social science that drives his world and his creation that allows this this entire in this entire universe to unfold. So my my contention for those that say this isn't science fiction is that they don't really understand what the genre science fiction can entail. However, this book also gives birth to a whole new genre of science fiction books. The mechanized armor science fiction category that's a whole category it is a whole category as i was reading about these suits you know what i kept picturing in my mind was um terran marines from uh, starcraft yep in fact one of the one of the articles that i've read uh recently in preparing for for this week's podcast is the the fact that they do talk about the uh the marines in starcraft but they talk about warhammer 4000 they talk about BattleTech. they talk about robotech uh, that all of these and and uh, some of the other Japanese anime mecha uh, uh, television shows and and stories that all revolve around the idea of mechanized armor that an individual gets into, a lot of that came as a result of Robert Heinlein's suggestion of Star Trek Troopers and the motor, mobile infantry. Voltron, Thank you, Robert Heinlein for Pacific Rim. <laughs> yeah, right. Voltron. All right, Ken. Power Rangers. Final thought. Is that your final thought? Yes, Voltron and Power Rangers. No. <laughs> You know, you I can love be, this book. You can be three feet away from that mic and just blast. <laughs> I still your... Sorry, I thought I was back far enough. That's this, hilarious. I, I loved this book when I was a kid and actually fancied myself as something of a writer. Uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I love to write. I had this this whole thing about about mecha and or about uh, mobile armor and everything and and. Uh, being, you know, fending off a, a race of bugs and stuff. And so when reading this, I was just like, <gasps> it's me. No, but it wasn't me because I'm not as cool as Robert Heinlein. However, this book is great. Read it. And uh, would you like to know more? <laughs> <laughs> okay, go watch the movie if you had if you didn't get that reference. Ryan, final thoughts? Uh, first of all, I definitely highly recommend that everyone read this book i don't care your situation there is something in here that you can think over or learn through there's absolutely there's there's plenty of varying points to look at on here um it is not a simple book not by any perspective it is simply written and simply read but it is not simply thought about um it's there's way too much put young man thank you thank you i mean Gosh, just my list of little highlighted sections in here and quotes and stuff is enough to keep me, you know, giving me hours of philosophical thoughts and discussions uh, yet to come. So, you know, I'm thinking for our midweek episode, if we record a midweek episode, maybe we can roll into it as a discussion of science fiction and what is science fiction, because I think we we wanted to get to that in this cast, but we won't. Uh, So I'd say stay tuned for that one. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Anything else you want to say? No, you're fine. Go ahead. All right. Well, my my last thought, I, um, I there was a section when Rico's talking to his father. I guess it's Johnny. They're both Rico, right? Um, Johnny's talking to his father uh, who has joined the mobile infantry, and he's heading out on his own. And Johnny's saying, why? You know, you're the guy who kept telling me, no, go to Harvard. Don't join the army. Are you an idiot? Uh, and here you are. Why did you do it? 
Uh, and he says, I had to prove to myself that I was a man. Not just a, pro- a producing, consuming, economic animal, but a man. And I, I highlighted that because I felt like um, amid all the points that that he makes um, uh, about the politics, the, the economics, the whatever, uh, if you want to go into Johnny Rico's story that, that he's telling with all these accoutrements, that's what he's telling is the story of somebody who is trying desperately to become a man. Uh, and I love that. It, there's, uh, it's a concept that I, uh, that I'm, I'm not sure that we, that we've kept up with in, in our, in our science fiction and fantasy. There, we talk about coming of age stories, but, uh, but this one I, I felt did it a lot better than most. Anyway, uh, and and I'm with you guys. If uh, if anybody's listening to this and you haven't read Starship Troopers, go read it. If we haven't convinced you now, then I guess you won't be convinced. But but please go read it. If you've read Ender's Game, uh, then you've read oh. the late 20th century version of this mid 20th century novel. Mm-hmm. A lot of I'd, a lot I'd, of similarities there, but a lot of the concepts are the same. Men in a in, a, in an intergalactic war against a bug race. Uh, a book that's all about individual development and leadership and all that stuff. It's the main guy fantastic. that I think is a little easier to follow, a little <laughs> easier to relate to. And if you really, Ender. and yeah. if you really hated this book, pick up the Forever War, which Joe Haldeman wrote as an answer to the Starship, Starship Troopers, where he says that Joe that uh, Robert Heinlein was got it all wrong. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to the three of you for uh, chiming in. I don't think that we've decided on a next book to read uh, in our Heroes of Sci-Fi journey, but we do have several on the docket. Uh, so watch our Facebook page and listen to the midweek uh, episode, and we'll announce that uh, and and get moving on the next subject. Uh, one thing that I have plans for uh, but has not yet coalesced is a uh, an, an episode on horror, uh, horror films specifically. Uh, so that should be coming down the pike real soon. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, enjoy your week, and go read sci-fi. Sci-fi.